The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Hope is on the Horizon for Patients with ALS, Overcoming Diagnostic Difficulties and Exploring Novel Emerging Therapeutic Approaches. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ZXV860. Downloadable additional resources are also available. The first part of the presentation is going to be to focus on the clinical aspects of ALS and our ongoing efforts to try to expedite uh, recognition and diagnosis because we all feel that the earlier diagnosis and treatment can be administered, the more robust is going to be the outcome of the treatments. ALS is a progressive fatal neuromuscular disease that affects upper motor neurons and lower motor neurons in the brain, brainstem, and spinal cord. So it presents as muscle weakness. It's usually in a specific region of the body, such as the arm, leg, or in the bulbar muscles. So painless weakness that's insidious at the beginning, causing loss of motor functions due to loss of the motor neurons innervating those muscles. After Progression, which can span two to five years, death occurs generally from progressive respiratory failure. Age of onset is wide between 25 and 85, average at 65, and the incidence is two per 100,000, prevalence of five per 100,000. And we believe in the United States, for example, there's approximately about 25,000 patients at any one time. Here, we're showing one of the aspects of the disease, which is the enormous heterogeneity that we see in progression of ALS. This is the ALS functional rating scale. It's a 48-point scale. 48 points is normal. It represents bulbar function, arm function, leg function, and respiratory function, and it declines steadily over time. You can see that there's huge variability in the rate of progression from very rapid within 12 to 18 months to quite slow, which may be several years, sometimes with plateaus and there are spatial remissions and reversals have even been recorded. So the important point is just how different it is from one person to the next and how important it is to individualize and personalize their care. In the past, it has been a long delay from the onset of symptoms to the time the patient is formally diagnosed or formally referred to a treatment centers. And as the therapeutic approach gets more successful, it's clear that we need to administer treatments earlier. So early and accurate diagnosis is essential for ALS patients to receive specific clinical management that can be effective early in the disease course. And it's also important for the correct inclusion of patients in our clinical trials for targeted therapies. The diagnosis of the disease is ultimately a clinical diagnosis, and it's an exclusion of other mimicking diseases, such as spinal cord compression, uh, other neurodegenerative diseases, a nerve injury, root injury, and so on. But then in the armamentarium of testing, we have a battery of tests, the most recognized, of course, is going to be electromyography and nerve conduction studies. And the duty of the electromyographer is to stage the extent that there is a neurogenic changes in motor neurons, that it's relatively diffuse, and that there's no mimicking disease such as a nerve injury or nerve entrapment or root level injury. I would add to this 
that frequently patients with very early discrete disease may not have a lot of electromyographic abnormalities since the disease is so contained anatomically, such as in a bulbar muscle or in upper motor neurons. MRI is, of course, for spinal and brain imaging, and muscle biopsy is not so much employed anymore unless there's really concern about specific muscle disease, but it's occasionally employed. Genetic testing is emerging as extremely important for stratifying the patients. A negative test doesn't mean it's not ALS, but there's a significant number of patients who have genetic mutations. Lumbar puncture, if there's concern about uh, leptomeningeal infiltration or inflammation or other immune diseases, but typically is bland and negative in ALS patients. And then there's a number of other blood tests that are frequently employed to rule out the infectious etiologies, but there's a number of, say, metabolic abnormalities, B12, vitamin E, copper deficiency that may occasionally mimic and are employed. As the ALS scientific community has gotten more and more organized, there have been a number of uh, iterations of criteria with which to uh, diagnose ALS. A lot of it has been developed for research purposes, for inclusion in clinical trials, and they've been developed in various iterations over decades. You will hear about the ls Coriel criteria, which were the original criteria. Then there was an ls Coriel revised and then more recently, further revisions were made in which electrophysiologic criteria were standardized. And it's largely been based on probability of ALS being the explanation for the symptoms. So it ranges from possible ALS, probable ALS with laboratory evidence supporting it, probable ALS and definite ALS. And it's a bit of a paradox because on the one hand, we want to be sure in our clinical trials that we're testing patients who have definite ALS, but it's also clear, on the other hand, that the earlier the treatments are employed, when the diagnosis is more suspected or possible, the greater the magnitude of the effect. An important part of the disease is a classification between sporadic and familial, and about 90% of the cases are going to be sporadic cases. There's no clear genetic or environmental risk. There are cases that occur out of the blue. Most of the time, they're healthy, high-functioning individuals. But about 10% of cases, it's in the family. And it's essentially an autosomal dominant inheritance. Most of the genes are thought to be gain-of-function mutations. There have been some 60 genes that have been identified over time, but there are some key genes the largest is the C9R72, which was identified in 2011. That represents about 40% of the familial group. SOD, which was identified in the 1990s, represents about 20% of the familial. Then there are a number of mutations that are about 1%, such as FUS and TDP. And then there's a scattered other ones that are frequently now being identified with genome sequencing and current techniques. So we're getting a long list of the genes. An important aspect of this is that this classification of sporadic and familial is based on the clinical history, which we obtain in the exam rooms, and then we proceed to genetic testing. So as the genes have been identified, we're now applying these tests to the sporadic patients, and we're finding 
that a large number, about 8% of what we think are sporadic patients, in fact, have gene mutations. The belief is not that these are new mutations, de novo mutations, but probably just misclassified due to a number of uh, factors. So in fact, sporadic ALS may represent more like 80% of the ALS population. Familial really is moving more toward about 20% of the patients. As this significant role of genetics has been recognized, there's an increasing meaning in obtaining genetic testing for all patients, not just the ones who have been identified with a family history. And so we're going through a paradigm shift in authorizing and proceeding to genetic testing. And it's even now rolling out to patients who have gene mutations identified in the family, but they themselves are asymptomatic. And so one of the new frontiers in the genetic testing that we're reckoning with in terms of standards is going to be who to test when there is a genetic mutation in the family and at what age and what are the benefits and what are the consequences of proceeding to gene testing and identifying people who are at risk or their gene carriers but asymptomatic. If we're going to really do early administration of treatments, then identifying those who are at risk and then following them closely is emerging as a new approach to this population of patients. In terms of a pathogenesis of ALS, it's obviously complex and multifactorial. And in terms of looking at actual mechanisms, we don't really know how complex this is going to turn out to be whether we'd be able to stratify patient populations based on pathogenic factors. The key signature pathologic feature of ALS for 97% of the patients is the mislocalization of a protein called TDP43. It's a primarily a nuclear protein. Its main function is its processing of RNA in the nucleus. But in ALS, what we find is that the TDP has left the nucleus, it accumulates in the cytoplasm, and aggregates in the cytoplasm of motor neurons. So it's put ALS in the category of the other aggregation diseases, such as Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease, where aggregations of key proteins, synuclein for Parkinson's disease, and tau for Alzheimer's disease, seems to be a common feature and so in the science of this, trying to understand the biology of TDP, a number of pathways are set up. And these include mitochondrial dysfunction, dysregulation of transport in the axons, impaired DNA repair, nuclear export, aberrant RNA metabolism, protein homeostasis, oxidative stress, neuroinflammation, neuroexcitation, glial dysfunction, and exonopathy. One of the challenges in the field of ALS has been trying to come up with something beyond just clinical diagnosis and clinical recognition, a biomarker of disease that will aid us in early diagnosis and a biomarker that may help us in trying to understand whether our therapies are actually engaging mechanisms and having an effect. So in the search for biomarkers, there's a number of uh, candidates that are being looked at. Some are inflammatory and some are other aspects of disease pathogenesis. And there's a big effort in the field now for either CSF or blood-based biomarkers. 
the one that is probably the most mature and useful at this point has to do with the neurofilaments. There's a couple of neurofilaments, neurofilament light and a phosphorylated neurofilament heavy chains, and they are relatively equally sensitive in the CSF or blood. So now we even have a blood biomarker. Don't have to resort to a lumbar puncture to obtain it. And it is emerging that the neurofilaments are one of the first hallmarks of conversion from asymptomatic disease to symptomatic disease. So it's offering some promise for early detection so that we're administering not only for diagnosing, but also for administering early treatments. One of the challenges in ALS care is that because of its rarity, there's often not any concentrated experience in any one provider or in any one center. It's scattered geographically. And so now the movement into multidisciplinary care has really made a huge impact on the quality of life of patients with ALS. And in these clinics, the complex challenges that they support include managing speech and communications, managing nutrition and swallowing, managing secretions, managing weight, managing affect, the pseudobulbar affect that some of the patients get, managing mobility, home safety, home care, and respiratory support are among the major efforts that are carried out in the multidisciplinary clinics. Pain can be a feature for some patients. Cramping, spasticity, depression are other symptoms that we can deal with if they come up. And more and more, I think the multidisciplinary clinics for ALS are also either developing or working with their colleagues in palliative care and in pulmonary care and in home care. And here it shows the number of providers who are involved in coordinating ALS care at the main list, of course, is the ALS neurologist with the ALS coordinators with a team of social workers speech and language pathologists, dietitians, occupational physical therapists, respiratory therapists, mental health professionals, nursing professionals, and a huge support from our colleagues in pulmonary medicine and in palliative care and primary care and in home care. The way these multidisciplinary clinics operate is typically been the patient will come in and then all of the different team members and providers will come in and then meet with the patients, review and assess, prioritize the issues, and then conference at the end of the clinic on each patient individually so we have a personalized approach to the needs of the patient and their families for each patient. And then this is repeated approximately every three months, or at least in some regular basis that's appropriate to the rate of progression. In the COVID era, we learned a lot about uh, doing virtual visits with uh, patients. And so a lot can be done with virtual visits. And some patients prefer to continue with virtual visits, or we'll do a hybrid of alternating between virtual and in-person visits. The point is that our clinical care is now expanded to have more formats in which we can render a multidisciplinary care. Most of these drugs that I'm going to be talking about now are not thought to be curative. The pathways and the mechanisms are not completely clarified, but they do have the effect of what we think is slightly attenuating the progression of the disease. The 
drug that has been around since the 1990s is a drug called Riluzol. It's an anti-glutamate medication, has to do with some ideas about the role of glutamate and excitation in the progression of the disease. The general rule is that we think it could extend survival by two to three months. It's easy to administer. It doesn't have many side effects. Liver function tests need to be monitored on a regular basis to identify any possible hepatotoxicity. And I would say about a third to half of the patients choose to go on this therapy. A more recently approved medication is called a Daravone. It initially came out in 2017 in an IV formulation, but just in the summer of 2022, the FDA approved an oral formulation of the drug. So it's circumvented the complexity of IV administration. It's thought to have an antioxidant effect. The belief is that it attenuates the progression of the disease somewhat. It seems to be, for the most part, well tolerated without too many side effects. The more recent medication that has just been FDA approved within the end of 2022 is a medicine which is a combination of phenylbutyrate, which is an existing drug, and a compound called Tudka, which is a bile acid that's actually commercially available. The scientific rationale behind this was to do artificial intelligence of existing gene panels in the field of ALS and identifying two pathways, one having to do with ER and the other with mitochondrial pathways that are believed to be involved in disease pathogenesis, and then finding existing compounds that act on those pathways It was taken through a phase two study, and on the basis of the phase two study, the U.S. and the Canadian regulatory had approved it on the basis of the preliminary evidence. So as we're trying to roll this new compound out to the patients in the U.S., we hope that there'll be more objective data in a phase three administered study. The evidence that this is effective is shown here, and you can see that in separation between the placebo and the uh, treated group and the calculated survival has shown encouraging benefit. I've talked a lot about the clinical care and the supportive care, the rehabilitative care, the palliative care that we have for patients and the advances. And now we're starting to enter an era in which we have true medical intervention or drugs that we think alter the biology of the disease and the progression. Now you'll see a brief animated video that demonstrates the mechanisms of action of several promising emerging therapies under investigation for the treatment of ALS. Phenotypic and genetic variations among patients with ALS indicate that multiple disease mechanisms are involved in the development and progression of the disease. RIPK1 is a signaling protein in the tumor necrosis factor receptor pathway that regulates inflammation and cell death. In patients with ALS, increased RIPK1 activity in the brain drives neuroinflammation and cell necroptosis and contributes to neurodegeneration. SAR-443820 is an investigational CNS-penetrant small molecule that inhibits RIPK1-mediated inflammation and necroptosis of motor neurons. Chronic activation of the neuronal integrated stress response suppresses the activity of eukaryotic initiation factor 2b, 
leading to impaired protein synthesis and the formation of stress granules, which are precursors to TDP43 aggregates. DNL343 is a small molecule designed to activate EIF2B, which restores protein synthesis, disperses stress granules and TDP43 aggregates in the cytoplasm, and improves neuronal survival. CNMAU8 is a suspension of clean-surfaced, catalytically active gold nanocrystals that has shown neuroprotective activity through the catalysis of NADH oxidation to NAD, which increases ATP production, restores energy to brain cells, and promotes the dispersal of TDP43 aggregates in the cytoplasm. Mutations in the gene encoding SOD1 are associated with up to 2% of all cases of ALS. Disease expression is mediated by a toxic gain-of-function mechanism associated with the aggregation of the misfolded SOD1 protein. Tofersin is an antisense oligonucleotide that mediates RNA's H-dependent degradation of SOD1 messenger RNA, reducing mutant SOD1 protein synthesis. So we've talked about a couple of the existing small molecules, and there is now a number of attempts to modulate pathogenesis and advance therapies using other small molecule approaches. A CNMAU8 is an oral suspension that works on a mechanism related to fundamental oxidation within the cell with NADH to NAD+, which is driving production of ATP and restoring energy in the brain cells. And so this is advancing through various stages of development and is now in clinical trial. The Rescue ALS is a phase two trial and trying to focus on early symptomatic ALS. It's randomizing a one-to-one drug to placebo, and the primary outcomes have to do with the rate of decline of the ALS FRS, and there's various neurophysiologic measurements called MUNICs, which has to do with motor unit physiology and trying to see whether there's an attenuation of the denervation that is known to occur in ALS. Long-term survival analysis across Rescue ALS and the Open Label Extension, which had a data cutoff date of July 5, 2022, showed that patients who received CNMAU8 during the Phase two Rescue ALS trial had a 70% lower risk of death compared with patients who started treatment with CNMAU8 in the open-label extension. One of the emerging pathways that's been identified in ALS pathogenesis has to do with a pathway called necroptosis, and that seems to be modulated by a RIPK1, which is a kinase, which modulates the inflammatory response. And so RIPK1 inhibitors have now advanced through the early phase one trial and is now into a phase two trial. And this is going to be a prospective double-blind clinical trial with a two-to-one randomization between drug and placebo, and then the patients will be entering an open-label phase. So this is in the early part of the phase two trial. It's proceeding with a good recruitment, and there's no preliminary measurement yet in terms of efficacy, but it will be one of the next trials that we're going to be hearing about. Another compound, DNL343, is working on another pathway in this cell called the integrated stress response. And so this compound 
is now in phase one development. And if determined to be safe, which I think preliminarily it appears to be, it's going to then also pass into a phase two trial, and that will be opening within the next few years. We talked about the genetic-based diseases and the belief that most of the genes are acting through what's called the gain-of-function mechanism, meaning that the mutation in the genes cause some abnormality of the protein or the products of the gene that are toxic. And the two most common gene mutations are C9R72 and SOD1. And those are the two that have been studied the most at this point. And the most encouraging has come from the SOD mutated patients, where after months or years of therapy, we're finding attenuation of the disease. This shows how the SOD might work. You can see the mutation, the gene products, and then the consequences of the gene product causing dysfunction in the cytoplasm of the cell and the toxicity, either through aggregation or through various interactions that alter the function of the cell. And so therefore, if we can reduce the gene expression through various therapies such as antisensoliconucleotides, we can attenuate disease progression. These therapies are generally administered through direct CSF introduction, so it's an intrathecal therapy. But with the administration of the gene therapy, the antisensoliconucleotide, it's wide distribution throughout the CSF. There's good uptake in the motor neurons and a duration of action that's at least one month and more likely three months. And this shows the results of the phase three trial. And I think the important point to make on this is that during the actual trial, there was perceived benefit in our various measurements of the target. There was clear engagement of the target, meaning that as we measured the SOD1 protein, there was clear reduction of the protein in the CSFs. And then the question became, is there clinical benefit? And indeed, there was clinical benefit, but it didn't actually achieve statistical significance. But then in the open-label extension phase of the study, where all of the patients got it, it became more and more apparent that there was good benefit. There's a growing enthusiasm that, in fact, the antisensoliconucleotide approach to SOD1 mutant ALS is working. So I want to conclude with the message that the field of ALS has had rapid developments in the last 10 or 15 years. And this has occurred in terms of understanding the basic mechanisms in neuropathology, recognizing the number of gene mutations and the important role of genetics in pathogenesis. And we're now in a very active phase of drug development with a number of therapeutic approaches, which we think will have significant impact on progression of disease and with the development of these compounds, clearly early recognition and early diagnosis and early treatment is going to have game-changing impact on disease progression. Thank you very much. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit 
at peerview.com forward slash ZXV860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi.